I feel just a little guilty this morning. If you were here last week, I made the statement that I'm jealous because Paul was going to get to preach this next text. I said a little guilty. Well, Paul's not here because Paul's sick. So I guess if you want to infer that I made Paul sick, maybe, I don't know, but... Anyway, I'm praying for Paul and Tony. They're both under the weather. Hopefully, they'll be back with us soon. Um, before you turn to Genesis, though, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15. I have been reminded this week in a very real way, just through circumstances and events, just reminded in a very real way that we all deal with complicated life circumstances. All of us are dealing with some adversity which brings pain, we have trials, and we all need real hope, don't we? We, we, all, we all need, we need more than just platitudes to put our hope in. We, we all need something real that we can put our hope in. And in Romans chapter 15, you've heard me refer to this verse many times, but maybe I've never had you turn there. But Romans 15 and verse 4. For whatever was written in former days, whatever was written in former days, for, for us today, whatever was written in former days, would that be our whole Bible? Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So in other words, when we come to God's Word, we're to be learners. We're to be learners. We're to be open to being instructed. To do that, you kind of have to humble yourself, don't you? You have to admit that you don't know it all right? you got to be open to being instructed. There's nobody worse in the world than the person that is unteachable. Anybody know somebody who's unteachable? They are like the absolute worst people in the world because they know it all, right? So we can't be that way. Whatever was written for, was written for our instruction, and this is the word that I want to just begin with, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Endurance. Endurance means to be steadfast, to be loyal to what you believe, and to loyal to the faith. Look up here this morning. Is it always easy to have endurance? One of the biggest things fighting against our endurance is the fact that, that we live in a world, and, and we live in a world that, that, is, that is full of unrighteousness. We live in a world that's full of discouragement, and, and we ourselves discourage our own selves. Anybody guilty of discouraging your own self? Letting yourself down? And the last thing that we want to do is to endure to the end. Many times, if you're like me, you just want to throw in the towel and walk away. Anybody else there? Just throw in the towel, walk away. This Christian life thing, I tried it, it's hard, and, and you know, it, it's, it's not, it doesn't seem to be doing much for me right now, I just want to give up. Like, Pastor Dan, that's not what you're supposed to tell us. But that's what we feel, isn't it? Endurance is hard. Which is why when Paul wrote this under inspiration, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, that second word, endurance without encouragement would just be too hard, wouldn't it? We need to be encouraged as well. 
And when we have both of those working together, we have real hope. You see it there at the end of the verse? We have hope. And so this morning, as we go back to Genesis chapter 22, what we have here is just an amazing passage of Scripture. We all know that Abraham had to walk by faith. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says in verse 8 that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to a place that he didn't know where he was going, okay? That would take a lot of faith, wouldn't it? You agree with me? That would take a lot of faith to just, God comes and talks to you, first of all, to actually believe that it's God talking to you, and then to act on what God tells you to do takes a lot of faith. Abraham just got up and went. That takes a lot of faith. Secondly, in verse 9 of Hebrews 11, it says this, by faith Abraham lived in the land of promise. But the thing about that is, did he ever put roots down anywhere in that land of promise? No, he wandered in that land of promise, didn't he? He never really had a place that he called home. Think about it. Abraham lived a long time. You and I have a place we call home, don't we? I can take you to the first home that I lived in still. It's still standing. I can show you all the places where I've lived because I can show you where home was or, and I can take you to where I've lived the longest, which is the home that I live in now. We all have a place that we call home. Abraham never had that. He was picking up and moving from place to place. He never had a place that he put down roots. And what we know about Abraham is, and we've seen it as we've gone through his life is, is that his faith at times really got shook and it wavered. It grew in some places, which led him to huge victories in his life, but then when he abandoned it, it led to crushing and humiliating defeats, didn't it? In other words, Abraham lived a kind of life that you and I can relate to. The highs were high and the lows were really what? low. I want you to just set your eyes on the first verse of our text today. And we're going to read the text in just a second. But, but I want you to just to let this sink in. Because this is not something that resonates with us. This is not something that we think about when it comes to God. But, but just let the first words of this, this chapter sink in. After these things, after, after he had made the treaty with with Abimelech, and, and, and it settled all that up. Now, now Moses records for us, after these things, God what? What did God do? Normally we think of things like test coming from not God, but from who? Who's doing the testing, church? Who's doing the testing? God is. Is God the same today as he was yesterday and will be the same forever, church? So is it fair to say that God still is testing people? Yeah, God tests. And, and that word testing there, but even before I read the text, I just want to point this out. God says that he is proving Abraham. He is literally putting him to the test to see if he can pass the test to prove whether or not that he is something. The same word 
is used over in 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 1. And it's at the beginning of King Solomon's reign, where remember Solomon is the wisest person who's ever lived. He now takes the throne from David. And the Queen of Sheba shows up in Jerusalem. And it says there that she wanted to prove Solomon. She came with a bunch of questions to, to figure out whether or not he truly was as wise as he says he was. It's the same word. He came, she came with hard questions. Now, I don't know about you, but the kind of testing that I, have, that I have gone through in my life, that I believe that God has put into my life, the kind of testing I've gone through, the kind of testing we see in this text here specifically is the kind of testing that is going to make us rely on something greater than ourselves. Whoever said that God won't give you more than you can handle is a liar. God always tests us beyond what we are able you want to know why? Because he doesn't want us to rely on ourselves. We're good at relying on ourselves. That's what we default to do. Every single one of us is good at relying on ourselves. And every time we do it, if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to make a mess of it, right? God tests us so that we will rely on something greater than ourselves. And in doing so, in doing so, it reveals a couple things. It reveals the depth, and it reveals the strength of our faith. God is always at work to test us, not because he, just because He can. What kind of God would that be, you know? Well, you know, I'll just see if I can put a little adversity in Scarberry's life. Let's see what he can handle this month. That's not the kind of God we have. He's always doing it for a purpose. And one of the things that I've learned in my life is sometimes the testing that you and I go through isn't even about us, it's about other people or other situations. And yet, we always default, if you're like me, to, oh Lord, why me, why now, and I'm just suffering for Jesus, and I'm going to gut it through, and everybody think I'm really spiritual, right? God is going to come, and He is going to put Abraham to the ultimate test. This is one of those passages that you know already. You've heard this account. And I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to ask the Lord to give us fresh eyes for it this morning. Because it'd be really easy to go through here and just recall all the facts and like, yeah, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that, and miss the point of the text, wouldn't it? So let's have a word of prayer this morning, and then let's read Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 through 19. Father, we don't often think about the fact that you would intentionally put us to the test. We think about it happening to Job. We even think about it happening here in this text with Abraham. But we don't think about it happening to us personally. And yet here's the thing. You love us enough to test us. You love us enough to drive us from ourselves, to drive us to you the same way that you did with Abraham. And so this morning, as we look at a familiar passage of Scripture, I pray that in all its familiarity, that we wouldn't lose sight of what it is that you want to teach us this morning. Spirit, we're going to need you to, to work in our hearts. We're going to need you to take the Word of God and drive it deep. And, 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 and then throughout the coming days, bring it to our recall. Because Left to ourselves, we're not going to get what we need out of this text of Scripture. So God, do that amazing work that only you can do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Genesis 22, verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both of them so they went, both of them, excuse me, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son, He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. How many of you have had to take a hard test in your life? Some kind of final, maybe maybe some kind of certification that, that required you months to prepare and time to do it. You don't just go sit down and take a test, do you? You have to prepare for it, right? And in this, in this passage this morning, we have Abraham being put to a test like no other test that he's ever been put to. No other test. And God had been preparing Abraham over the course of his life for this test. Now, we haven't even been thinking about it as we've been going through Genesis, but all that we have seen Abraham going through and all of the successes, the failures, the growth, and the, and, the, and the regression in his life have all been preparing him for this moment right here. Which tells me this. Many times when you and I are just going through life and it just seems like life is punching us from both sides and we're getting knocked down, as soon as we get back up, life knocks us down. God is doing preparatory work for something. We can always count on God being ready and God preparing us so that we are ready. And he does that for us. 
And God knows the extent of the test here. One of the things I want to point out to you that just jumped off at me, and when you're reading the Bible, these are some things that that should help you. You should look for repeated words and phrases in a passage of Scripture. In verse 2, and in verse uh, 12, and in verse 16, when God is talking to Abraham about Isaac, he uses this qualifier three times, your only son, your only son. Now think back, a couple weeks ago, we talked about God removing the plan B's out of Abraham's life, didn't we? And one of the hardest plan B's that he had to do and remove from Abraham's life is when he took Ishmael out of his life. Up until that point, how many sons did Abraham have? He had two sons, right? At that point when he sent him off, not only was he just sending him out to be on his own, but he was pretty much renouncing him as a son. He was sending him out because there was now one son of promise. And when God deals here with Abraham, when he asks him to do this unthinkable thing, God knows what he's asking. Three times he says to him, your only son. Now he only has one son. And God is saying to him, take the only one you have, the plan A, take him three days journey from here to a place called Moriah, take him up on the mountain there, and I want you to not just present him to me, I want you to burn him alive. Think about that. And go back with me to chapter 17, because I want you to see it for yourself. Isaac, Isaac is an important guy, and he's important in the eyes of God. In chapter 17 and verse 19, God says that I've chosen Abraham, and he says in verse 19, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In other words... The offspring, which now, how how much offspring does Abraham have? He has one son. God's chosen him and his one son. And and, and lest lest you and I forget, was his birth a miraculous birth? Yes. God gave Abraham a son in his old age. He gave Sarah a a son in her old age. A miraculous birth. This was a one-time deal, and now they only have one. And now God comes to him and he says, take him and Burn him alive. And we got to be thinking to ourselves, really, God? Is that really what you want? You miraculously opened a door, and now you're going to slam it shut? And from all appearances, does it look like God wants to slam the door shut? It does. Go back to chapter 21 in verse 33. We saw this last week. What was the lesson that Abraham learned about his God? He is the what God? He's the everlasting God. He's the God who doesn't change. He he had that reminded to him, and he, he even planned a tree to memorialize it, and he has this burned in his memory, my God is the everlasting God who doesn't change, but but I want to tell you, it sure looks like his word is changing now, doesn't it? You told me that Isaac was the son of promise. You told me all these things were going to be fulfilled through Isaac. And now, God, you're telling me that that you want me to sacrifice him? 
How do you respond to challenging circumstances? How do you and I respond when God seemingly is asking us to do the impossible? Because would you agree with me that God is asking Abraham to do the impossible here? How do we respond to that? Well, I think we can learn a lot from how Abraham responds. Look at verse 3. Abraham rose when? Early in the morning. He got right to it. He got right to it, prompt obedience. When God asks us to do the impossible, you know the best thing to do is just to begin doing the impossible. He, he, he immediately gets to it. He, he, he does everything he needs to do. The second thing that I see here is, is in verse 3, and I don't want to make too much of this, but, but I want to tell you, Abraham takes this command personally because Abraham could have commanded the young men to cut the wood, but who does Moses tell us, and the Holy Spirit tell us, who, who does the wood cutting here? It's Abraham himself. He, he takes this command personally. And I don't want to make too much of it, but, but there is something about it. When God commands you to do something, you better take it personally. You better take it as this is what God's asked me to do. When you and I read the word and God says, this is what I want you to do, it's not just for other people in, in your family or other people in your church family. It's for you. The command is for you. And he takes this command personally and he travels for two days. Can you imagine what the conversation must have been like between Abraham and Isaac? Now, when you read this, it, you kind of get the idea that Isaac might be a young kid. Isaac is not a young kid. He is a young man at this point, okay? He, he is a young man. He is an adult, okay? He, he, is, he is ready to go out on his way, and he's going with his father here. And can you imagine the conversations that they're having? Abraham in the back of his mind knowing the whole time what he has to do, trying to act like nothing's really the matter, and yet Isaac is sensing there's something different about this, right? Then we come down to verse 5, and Abraham makes one of the biggest statements of faith that you will ever see in the scriptures. Look at it with me. They get to where they're going. Abraham says to the young men, you stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, Isaac and I will go over there, we're going to worship, and we will what? We're going to come back. Now, either Abraham's lost his mind, or that is a total faith statement here. And I have to ask myself, what's going on here? And, and, and here is the key to obedience in tough circumstances. Here is the key to being an enduring person as opposed to a person who gives up. You really take God at his word. That's, that's the key. It's faith. Because, because remember, there are two things here that seem to be in direct opposition. Isaac is the son of promise. He's the one by whom I'm going to bless you, Abraham. He's the one who's going to be the one who fulfills the, all the promises that I've given to you. And, and secondly, I want you to kill him, right? So if God says that both of these things must be, happen and must be true, must they happen, church? Yeah, Abraham has to act in faith here, and he has to go out and he has to act in faith, and we have to ask ourselves, what's going on in Abraham's mind? Well, quickly go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. 
Hebrews chapter 11. What's going on? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us exactly what's going on in his mind at this point. The Bible is always the best commentator on itself, okay? <laughs> the Bible is always the best commentary. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 the writer here uses the same words that God uses. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, whom he had received the promises, and was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That's faith, isn't it? Abraham believed both things could happen. He believed that Isaac was going to be the promised son. He also believed that he could offer him as a burnt sacrifice because he understood this. My God is the all-powerful God. He's the everlasting God. He can raise Isaac up. I don't know how he's going to do it, but maybe when Abraham's going over there, he's like, man, something big is about to happen here. Now, I don't know about you, when God puts me to the test, my first inclination is not, man, something big's about to happen here. It's like, oh, woe is me. Abraham believed that God, if he needed to, would raise Isaac from the dead. That's faith. That's faith. And here's the question for us this morning. Do you believe God's able? Do you, church, do you believe God's able? Do you really believe God's able? God's able to handle that circumstance that has been, been a problem in your life for years, that, that family circumstance, that one person that's just driving you crazy. That God's, that, do you believe that God's able? Here's the second question, and this is a hard one. I've got you to say yes, now I got you in my trap. Do you act like you believe it? because I don't always act like I believe it. I, I believe it up here, but when it comes to acting out on that, I default to like, I'll handle this myself. Anybody else like that? Because if I really believed it, I would act on that, wouldn't I? If I really believed that God was able, I, I would act like God is able, and I would, I would respond that way. And, and I want to point out to you now, back in chapter 22, how much Abraham really believed that God was able. He believed that God was able so much that in verse 8, when Isaac asked the obvious question, hey, Dad, Dad, I know you're getting old. Maybe you're forgetting some things, Dad. Okay? We've got wood. We've got fire. We even have a knife to kill the sacrifice. Hey, Dad, we forgot, Dad, we forgot the sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham has so much faith. What does he say to his son? God will take care of this. God's going to take care of this. He believed it so much that in verse 9, he could actually get to the point where he builds the altar and it comes time to put the sacrifice on the altar. He believed it so much that he bound his son. And at that point, Isaac knows what is going on. And let's understand something here about Isaac. Isaac is a young man. Could he have taken his dad? Could he have taken his dad? I hate to admit it, my son can take me. Even in his recovering condition, he can take me. Isaac didn't take his dad, did he? And here's the thing, and I want you to get this. Faith is contagious. And obedience is contagious. 
Abraham's faith and his, and his obedience of God is so contagious that Isaac allows himself to be bound and then placed on the altar. Let that sink in. Abraham believes it so much that he can tie up his son, put him on the altar, and then in verse 10, grab the knife and reach back to do what he needs to do to slay his son. And I don't think it's one of these things where it's like, okay, God, any time now. Okay, I got him tied up. Any time now, God. Got him up on the altar. Any time now, God. Got the knife out. Any time now. No, he was ready to plunge it. He was ready to plunge it. Look at verse 10. Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. And let's understand something here. Abraham began this whole process by prompt obedience. He obeyed the whole way through. He he obeyed right up to the very end, did he not? He obeyed right up to the point where God said, okay, time out. And I want you to see what God does in testing. Look at verses 11 through 14, God's provision in testing. I said this before, I'll say it again. God doesn't just test us because he can. There's always a purpose in the test. There's always a point to the test. And in this case, we can see that God's using it to reaffirm the covenant, but he's also using it not only for Abraham's benefit, but who's benefiting from all of this? You bet your life Isaac left that mountain differently than when he went up, don't you? If your dad was about to put a knife in your heart and God interrupted him, would you leave the mountain differently? In a few minutes, I want to point out something else that God does for him. But, but here you see the angel of the Lord interrupts him, and Abraham's response has been the same through this whole chapter. Repeated words are interesting. Abraham's response is the, has been the same. Notice here in verse 11, Abraham, Abraham, and he said what? Here I am. Isn't that exactly what he said in verse 1? Like, you'd have thought, Abraham, by saying here I am, that you would, get, you would not do that again because you get yourself in trouble every time. No, his response is the same. Here I am. He's making himself available to the Lord. Yes, I'm ready to do whatever. And we, all in, in his mind, he could have been saying, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do it. Right? No. God then says this to him. Verse 12. Don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Because now I know, and and here's what Abraham knew too, I really do fear God. I really do fear God. And, and, And after all, this is all that God is after, is that we will fear him. And he's and he's proven it here. There's a readiness to obey. He feared God and he obeyed him. It calls to mind, and if we had time, I'd look at it, but man, that clock is moving fast. In 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 24, Samuel's last, if you will, address to the nation of Israel, what he says to them is, before he goes off the scene, is this, only fear the Lord and serve him with all your heart. That's all, that's all I want you to do. And here's Abraham. He's fearing God and he's serving him. He's obeying him. 
Parents, you want a good outline for, for how to raise your kids? Raise your kids to fear the Lord and obey Him. To fear the Lord and serve Him. All the other stuff will sort itself out. I promise you it will. The reading, the writing, the arithmetic, that stuff will all sort it out. You teach your kids to fear the Lord and to serve Him, and you will have been a successful parent. Abraham's ready to obey, and God steps in at the last minute, doesn't he? But Abraham has come up there to worship, hasn't he? He said to his servants, hey, I'm going to worship. Me, me and the boy, we're going to go worship, and we're going to come back. Abraham still hasn't worshiped yet, has he? He hasn't offered that sacrifice. And notice what God does in verse 13. As soon as God stops him, Abraham looks up, and there's a ram caught in the thicket. Wow, that's an amazing quinky dink, isn't it? What's amazing is we're on the Mount Moriah. Do you know what was later built on Mount Moriah? Solomon's temple was built on Mount Moriah. This was just the first of many rams that will be offered on Mount Moriah. Just the first of many that will be offered there. In verse 13, he went and took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Hmm. What you have here is, is substitution. <laughs> Some years later, the perfect lamb of God would be presented at Solomon's temple as the substitutionary lamb and he would have been approved there and then he went to a cross and then he, and then he died. This is a picture of what Christ is doing for us what this lamb does for Isaac. Then in verse 15, God reaffirms the promise. And this is different than any other promise that he's made because any other time he's made the promise, it's only between himself and Abraham, right? But who's there to hear the promise this time? Isaac is here to, to hear the promise. And Isaac is going to need to hear the promise because he's going to be the carrier of that promise, is he not? He's going to need to hear it for himself. And God is so good that he rehearses it for Abraham, but really this is for Isaac's benefit as well to hear this. But when he does this, he does it like no other time. So he reaffirms it, verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. We've heard this before, right? We, we, we've, we've seen this before, God's already affirmed this several times. And their offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We've heard this. Because you have obeyed my voice. And, and let me point this out. Is there always blessing to be had in obedience, church? Is there always blessing to be had in obedience? You may not get the blessing as quick as, and reaffirmed as quick as Abraham got it here, but there is always blessing in obedience. But what is so interesting is, is the beginning of this, where God says in verse 16, by myself I have sworn. He's not said this before when he's talked to Abraham. He says, by myself I have sworn. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, by myself I'm now swearing this to you. 
You're going to have a land, you're going to have a prolific family, and you're going to be a blessing. And I have to ask myself, why is God swearing by himself? What's the significance of this? Well, again, the Bible is its best commentator. Leave Genesis and go with me back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. Why is God swearing by himself? I mean, after all, he's God. Does he need, does he need anything bigger than himself? To, when he says something, I mean, it's good enough, right, church? So why does he have to swear by his own name? Why does he have to take this oath by his own name? Why is he, what's he doing here? Well, the writer of Hebrews helps us to understand this. Verse 13 of chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Okay, logic, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, he's talking about this situation right here in chapter 22 on Mount Moriah, okay? So, he says, verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. There's an oath that's made, right? When, when you agree, when you sign a contract, you know, you, you pretty much swear that you're going to keep the contract, right? Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We read that already in Romans 15, didn't we? Hold fast to the hope that's set before us. For we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Go back to verse 18. What are the two unchangeable things that God, that God is, is clinging to or that God is using here? The two unchangeable things are, one, God's promise. Does God's promise ever change, church? No. And the second thing is, is the oath that he swears it on himself. So in other words, you have got two ironclad things that can never be destroyed. You have the promise of God and the fact that God backs it up with his own name. And what does that do for us? The writer of Hebrews tells us this. Verse 19, this is the anchor of our soul. What's your anchor? Not what should be your anchor, but what do you really cling to as your anchor? What, what, what is the chain of your vessel tied to? What is, it, what is really the anchor? If it's anything but the promise of God and the fact that he backs it up by his name, it is the wrong anchor. And who is the embodiment of the promise of God and, and, the, and God's name? It's Christ himself, is it not? Christ is the anchor. The one that, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The picture of Christ going in and making an atonement for you and I. The only one who could do that and it actually matter for us is Christ, right? Our hope is found in Christ and in Christ alone. The one who intercedes for us in the most holy place. And if your hope is placed in anything else, if your hope is placed in your, in your ability to do good, if your hope is, a, is placed in your ability to provide for yourself, if your hope is placed in the fact that you have good health or that you, that you have a wonderful family or whatever, your hope is misplaced. There's only one place that your hope can be placed 
and it really matter, and it's in Christ and Christ alone. And so God doesn't just write us a feel-good story in the middle of Genesis because it's been depressing up to this point, okay? That's what Hollywood would do, right? That's not what God's doing here. God writes this for us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have real what, church? Hope. And the real hope is found in Christ. But let's make sure that we're taking home what we need to take home. (laughs) True or false, God will test our faith. And if he's going to test our faith, we would be wise to respond like Abraham did with prompt obedience, would we not? If he's going to test, it would be wise to follow the example of Abraham. Am I obediently and promptly obeying him? I know it's late, but let me throw this in here for free. Can I just give you a parenting tip, parents? All parents listening to me, if you let your kids get away with not obeying you the first time, you are doing them a disservice because don't you want them to obey your heavenly father the first time? Kids are like, man, I wish he wouldn't have said that. But isn't that the case? Do you want your children to obey their heavenly father the first time he asks them to do something? Then you as a dad, you as a mom better expect it out of your kids. Because if you don't, they're going to do what they do with you, with God. They're going to try and bargain with God. Does it ever work to bargain with God? It may work for your kid in the aisle at Kroger. I promise I'll be good if you buy me some gum. Shut up, kid. Take the gum. And they're going to learn that God does the same thing. God doesn't bargain, does he? If you love your children, you will require them to obey you the first time. Is that hard, parents? Because kids are dumb, right? Just remember, you were dumb too. They're dumber. Yeah, I know. Secondly, fathers, don't miss the power of being a good example to your child. Isaac learned so much as a young adult in one trip to the mountain, right? He learned so much. And it's what he needed for him to take the mantle here soon of being the next patriarch, right? Without that trip to the mountain, Isaac isn't going to be able to lead the family well. And what Isaac learned is, is that the everlasting God is also Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And it got burned into his memory. Don't, Don't think for a second, Isaac isn't going to forget. I was the one laying on the altar, but when we left, it smelled like roast lamb. Right? And every time, I bet for a while, that Isaac saw a sacrifice being offered, he thought about what it was like to be on on Mount Moriah and how close he was to being the one on the altar. And then the final thing I want to make sure that we take home is this. (laughs) Any hope that's not placed in Christ and in Christ alone is a hope that's going to let you down. But hope that's placed in Christ... 
who is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the one that, that goes into the, to the most holy place of God, that's a hope that's well-placed. And let's be honest, we need some hope this week, don't we? We need some hope. We need some real hope. I'm so glad we have somebody in Christ who, who is a legitimate source of hope. So hopefully... We haven't just got a Sunday school knowledge when we leave here, right? We have a God who provides for us. We have a God, we have a God who does the impossible, and we have an example in Abraham of how to be obedient. And so, Father, we thank you for our time in the Word this morning. We thank you for Jesus, who is the ultimate lamb that was sacrificed for our atonement, that was sacrificed so that, so that we, like Isaac, could escape. We thank you for the hope that he gives to us. May our hope be squarely placed upon him this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.